0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Uh, the week after Christmas, um, took a week off and finally got a chance to sit down and do some reading that i had been planning to do for months. Um, I finally started reading a book that I've been planning to read, like I said, for months called Unbroken. Uh, most of you know the movie just came out actually on Christmas Day, and um, I'm only about halfway through the book but I didn't want to miss the chance to see the movie because there was a chance I wouldn't finish the book before the movie came went, so I went and saw the movie too. The movie's two and a half hours long and it doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the life of this guy named Louis Zamperini. How many have seen the movie or read the book or in the process of reading the book? An incredible story. This guy lived an incredible life. I mean, how can so many things happen to one person? Um, he had some, just some incredible things happen in his life, but there's also a, a bit of Murphy's Law in his life too. It's like if anything could go go wrong. It went wrong. If you don't know the story, I'll give you a quick overview. Louis Zamperini was born um, to an uh, uh, Italian immigrant family in Torrance, California. That's where he grew up. And as a young child, he was actually a bit of a juvenile delinquent. He actually started smoking at the age of five by picking up discarded butts, okay? He, would, he was known for... Um, he, he, he had a, a milk bottle that he had painted white on the outside that he had liquor on the inside, you know, as a kid. I mean, this is the kind of stuff he did. He he had an older brother named Pete who who thought, you know, I got to do something. This kid is going to end up somewhere really, really bad. And so he got his younger brother, uh, Louie, interested in running. And he thought, if I could just keep him busy, you know, maybe they'll keep him. And it turns out, turns out that he was actually quite good at running. I don't know if it's all the practice he had had running from people who were chasing him or what. Um, but he ended up, he actually ended up on the, in high school on the Torrance High School track team on the mile. And he set the high school record, national record for the mile for high schoolers. Um, and that was a record that stood for over 19 years. Um, he was that good. And, and he graduated high school and actually competed in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And um, not in the mile because the slot there was already taken. Um, he competed in the 5,000-meter event. He didn't win. He didn't place in the top three. But he did set a record for the sing- one single lap in that. On the last lap, he kicked it in the high gear, set a record for the lap uh, in that event. And everybody expected him to be the first person to break the four-minute mile. And, and, and he was just looking for and longing for uh, the 1940 Olympics where he would be able to run it. And that was, everybody expected him to be able to do it. Of course, what happened was World War II came along and kind of changed all of that for him. What he ended up doing was he enlisted in the Army Air Corps, uh, rose to the rank of lieutenant and was a bombardier um, on a B-24, which um, they, were not, they were notoriously unreliable planes. In fact, their nicknames were the floating coffins, Okay. And sure enough, in uh, 1943, I believe it was, his plane went down over the Pacific. And just he and two others survived the crash. And for the next 47 days, their home was a life raft drifting in the Pacific Ocean. For 47 days, they drifted over 2,000 miles. Actually, one of the survivors did not make it all the way through. One of them died on the raft. But the other two, he and the pilot, Phil, actually made it to land. Trouble was, when they made it to land... They were in Japanese territory. So they were taken prisoner, and he spent the next the rest two years plus uh, the rest of the war in a series of Japanese prisoner-of-war camps, where he was beaten and interrogated and tortured and beaten some more. And actually, when it came to the end of World War II, when the Japanese finally surrendered, um, they gathered all of the uh, prisoners together, and they thought, sure, they were just going to kill them all. But he actually survived all of that. They didn't do it. He was actually made it back to the United States, returned as a conquering hero, and you would think, man, great, except that he came back with severe post-traumatic stress disorder, which, of course, back in those days, they didn't know anything about it, and it was never diagnosed. But for him, it was night after night of nightmares, a life filled with anger and eventually alcoholism. And his life just went down. And in a a last gasp effort to save his marriage, his wife begged and dragged him to a Billy Graham crusade. And it was there that he surrendered his life to Christ and finally felt the peace and the restoring power of God's grace. And it changed his life. It's an incredible story. And he was asked years later. He actually just passed away this past year in his 90s. And he was asked towards the end of his life, what is it that kept you going? How did you survive all of those things? And he said, one word, hope. Hope. Hope is the one thing that you need to be able to go into a future that you know nothing about. Lewis Meads puts it this way. He said, there is nothing more important to the success of our journey into a future that we cannot control than that we keep our hope alive. Now, it's not likely that any one of us in here are going to spend 47 days on a life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Much less likely that any of us are going to spend two years in a prisoner of war camp. But every one of us in this room need hope to survive. Hope is that thing that keeps us moving in this thing that we call the journey of life. It's what keeps us moving forward. It is absolutely essential to the human spirit. And so this year, we're starting off 2015 with a series on hope. And we're actually going to base a lot of it on uh, Ray Johnston's book came out this last year called The Hope Quotient, Raising Your HQ. Um, and next week, we'll start getting into a little bit more of things that you can do to raise your hope quotient. And by the way, we have a limited, a very limited amount of these books left. We've got a, cup, a couple of them ahead of time. So we were able to give them to you. They're $20 um, Retail, they're $16.95, I think, on Amazon. We have them for $15 if you want to pick up one after the service at the help desk. Um, but we've only got a few left. So, um, but anyway, we'll get into that a little bit more next week. What I want to do today is start with just an introduction to this idea of hope. What is hope and what are the essentials of hope? And, and maybe 2014 was a real difficult year for you. And you find yourself at the beginnings of 2015 and your, your hope reservoirs are really, really low right now. That you just had, you were more than happy to kiss 2014 goodbye. Anybody in this room kind of feel that way? Okay, the person who just turned off their phone—that was that was you, maybe. Um, some of us had a really great 2015, and we're looking forward uh, 2014, and we're looking forward to 2015, and we have great anticipation. But the truth of it is, none of us know what this next year is going to bring. And the only way that you're able to move forward into a future that you really cannot control is this thing called hope. And so we're going to talk about hope for the next couple of weeks. And, and it doesn't matter um, whether you're just limping along in your hope or, or you've got great hopes right now. Here's some of the things that you need to know about hope. And we're going to start with a passage in Scripture that I think is the most definitive when it comes to this idea of hope. It's in Romans chapter 8, Paul's letter to the Roman church. He wrote these words. And I'm going to kind of skip because it's a lengthy passage, so I'm going to do some skipping here. And there's a whole lot more here than we have time to get into today. I really encourage you to read this on your own. But we're just going to uh, kind of hit the highlights of it this morning. Beginning in verse 18, Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eerily await our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope... We were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Verse 31, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's hope. It's something that is absolutely essential. And today what I want to do is kind of take this passage apart a little bit and just kind of hit some of the highlights, but I want to talk about these essentials of hope, because I think there are three things that Paul points out here that are absolutely essential for for us to have hope, to keep hope alive. And, And it's kind of like, you know, there's three essentials you need for fire. You need heat, you need fuel, and you need oxygen. And if you're missing any one of those three, you don't have fire. Well, there's three essentials, I believe, for hope, that any one of these, if you are missing them, you do not have hope. So I want to start with these three essentials, that it takes for hope, and it starts with this, that hopeful people are not content with things the way that they are. We're not content with the status quo. See, hope always starts with a desire or a longing or a wanting for something better, and that means a discontent with the way things are. Now, Paul put it this way. He said, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. He says, "There's this groaning in every one of us. It is, it is this desire for something better that we are not content with the way things are. We groan. Hey, yeah, let me give me an example of groaning. Groaning is like..." Um, on December 14th in a must-win game for the 49ers against the Seahawks, okay? And it's the fourth quarter, and the Niners have successively stopped the Seahawks, but Ed Hockley throws a personal foul yellow flag on Moody, and it gives the Seahawks one more chance, and every 49er watching that game groaned. And then one play later, when Wilson completed a pass in the end zone and Seahawks went up by another touchdown, we groaned again, okay? 49er fans have done a lot of groaning this year. Raiders fans, you're used to that. You have been groaning for years, okay? But this is new to 49er fans. No letters, no cards, okay, no emails, I'm kidding. A little bit. But what we know groaning, every one of us knows groaning, every one of us here in this room can groan, right? Okay let one pr- you know what it sounds like? It's oh. yeah, let's do one big groan altogether for, for 2014, okay? One, two, three. Oh. That's groaning that, that's. That's what happens when when you're a young man, and you finally work up the nerve to ask that pretty girl for that first date, and she turns you down and says no. What do you do? Oh, you groan. Or or you've you've been interviewing for a job, and you've been called back in the third interview, and you know, and they tell you it's down between you and one other guy, and then you get the phone call, and the other person got the job, and what do you do? You groan. Or it suddenly dawns on you that there's still 20 minutes left in this sermon this morning and you... (laughs) No, you don't groan. You don't groan. Groaning is what you do when you experience disappointment or frustration. Groaning is the sound of disappointment, discouragement, frustration. Paul put it this way. Creation was subjected to frustration in hope... The creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says, yes, we groan, but our groaning is because we long for something more. There are some groanings that we can kind of joke about, but there are deeper groanings. Pastor Jesse mentioned it yesterday morning. did a memorial service for a 17-year-old boy whose life ended tragically. That family is groaning right now. It's that deep anguish of the soul. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And with that, there is a longing for something better. See, that is, the, that is the positive side, if you will, to groaning. Groaning is what reminds us that we are not in control of our lives and that our life is very fragile. Groaning and the disappointments and the frustrations of the life are the reminders that, in truth, we are totally dependent on God in every way. And it's the thing that gets covered up in what we call normal life when everything's going along fine. And we forget our dependence because we're we're, we're distracted and detracted by everything working out. But when we find those moments of groaning, we realize this is not the way it's supposed to be. And our groaning not only reminds us of that, it also plants in us a longing for something better. And that's why it's the first essential to hope. It starts with this longing for something better. But then there's a second essential to it, that hopeful people can envision a better future. Because it's not just about wishful thinking. It's not, not just about a longing. There's actually a, a picture, a, a, a mental picture that we kind of develop of the way that things ought to be or things we want to be. Maybe more than mental picture, it's, it's, it's a soul picture, if you will, that comes from deep within, that gives us a sense that something has to change. Something needs to be better. And we kind of get a, a, in our mind's eye a picture of, wouldn't it be great if? I hope it would be this. Andy Stanley writes about it. He says, visions are born in the soul of a man or woman who is consumed with the tension between what is and what could be. Vision carries with it a sense of conviction. This is something that should be done. This is something that must be happen. Paul put it this way. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. We have a picture of something better. Our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies, that we have this hope for something better. We have this this picture of what it ought to be like. And because it's in the future, by the way, that means hope has a lot to do with waiting. <laughs> he goes on. He says, hope that is seen is no hope at all. If it's right in front of us and we really have hold of it, then, then, then that's not hope. But it's in our mind's eye. And we, who hopes for what they already have? But he says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't you just say we wait for it eagerly? <laughs> Which is it? Do we wait patiently or do we wait eagerly? And the answer to that is it's both. That's hope. There's actually two Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are used primarily for what we translate into our English word hope. One of them has to do with patiently waiting. That it's just, it's not here yet, and so we are waiting for it. But there's another word that's also sometimes translated hope into English for us. And that word, it it has with it the idea of eager expectation. It actually comes from the same root word, Hebrew word, that has to do with a cord or a rope. And it's as if we have set our anchor off in the future, and there is this line, this rope that holds us to that anchor, and we hold it taut, and we hold it tense, and, and that is hope. That it's what ties us to a future that we know is better. Lewis Meads calls it contented discontent. It's that tension that we live with. This eager anticipation for something better, but that is not yet here. And in the meantime, we wait. But we wait with anticipation. That's what Paul's talking about. The good news is that we're not alone in our hoping. We're not alone in our groaning. He said the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Isn't that a great phrase? God groans With us. He knows those longings and those groanings. And he groans along with us. It's not here yet. But when our holy discontent. Is combined with the picture of what should be. Hope starts to take root. And that goes to the third essential. Which is that hopeful people believe that, a few, that such a future will become a reality. See, there is an element to hope that includes faith. Every aspect of hope is tied to faith. They are part and parcel of the same thing. It is essential to hope that we have faith. Now, it might be a misplaced faith but it is still faith. Even people who do not have a faith in God have a faith in something, and that's what they put their hopes against. Andy Stanley talks about hope as if it's a ladder that we lean against a wall, and that's the ladder that we climb, and depending on what we lean, what wall we lean that ladder against will determine how well our hopes will be realized. Some of us lean our ladder against the, the, the faith in our education, or in our abilities and our talents and our skills. Or, or maybe, maybe in our career or that company that we want to get that perfect job with. Or, or some of us are leaning our ladder against that retirement account that you hope will be there someday when you need it. See, we put our faith in a lot of things. And when it comes to hope, it becomes absolutely essential that we put our faith in the right thing. And that's why Scripture keeps reminding us, don't put your hope and faith here. Don't put your faith there. Don't put put your faith in God, because he is the only sure source of hope. He is the only reliable wall that you can lean your ladder up against of faith. It's why it becomes so essential that we put our faith in the right things. There's only one sure source, only one reliable object of our faith, and it is God himself. Paul put it this way. Because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, that's where you need to put your faith. That's where you need to put your faith. Because what we know about God is that God is always at work in every situation. And even when our dreams die or our our hope ladder falls there is still one thing that we'll be able to do immeasurably more than we can imagine, even in our failures, even in our broken dreams and lost hopes. And that's God, because God works redemptively in everything. Not every situation, not every circumstance is good. He is, this isn't sugarcoating And He's saying, no, 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 life is hard. Life meets disappointments. Life has broken dreams and lost hopes. But we know that God works even in the broken dreams, even in the lost hopes, even in the failures of our life. God works. And not only does he work, but he works for the good. Not everything's good, but God works good in everything. There's a place to put your hope. Because it doesn't matter then what the circumstances are or even matter how, how, much, how badly you might have failed. God is faithful. God is the one place you can lean your ladder of hope up against and it'll be sure. And what it does is it gives us a hope for eternity. But it also gives us a hope for life here and now. And if you have any doubt about the goodness in the grace and the mercy and the love of God, he says, look at Jesus. If God is for us, he writes, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. If you want to know God's intent for you, if you want to know God's love for you, look at what Christ did for you. If you had any other doubt about what God feels for you or how God cares for you, look at Jesus. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He says, now, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he would go that far to give us something to put our hope in, why would we think he would ever give up on us? See, that is the grace and the mercy of God. And that's why Paul ends all this with these words. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a source of hope that will never fail. That's why you can have hope. Do you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.